0: Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby
1: to get ourselves a treat.
0: Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Frank Capello.
1: And I'm Rivka Rivera. So this was an interesting week in terms of conversation because we had our Barbie movie podcast come out last week and i've had a lot of people actually say that was one of the harder episodes for them to listen to has anyone said wow anything like really that mm-hmm. which i understand
0: no, no all of my all of my bros have hit me up and been like dude loved your takes on the barbie movie bro <laughs> uh no i'm just kidding no one i was no like one who is... i'll kill them wait, wait what was your experience
1: i well there was a mix there were some people who were like wow thank you for sharing an alternative point of view, not that we're the only ones with a critical point of view on Barbie, but I do think there was that feeling of, oh, if I didn't like this, can I say it out loud? Which was like, mm-hmm. we we addressed a little bit on the podcast, but I, I loved it because we got into just discussion of like, how do you hold critical thought around things that you love and enjoy? And I think that's, again, like a continual practice, but one that's going to be deeply needed as we move towards 2024 when i think they're going to really push us back towards this binary sentiment blue versus red and if you if you don't feel like there's anything outside of that binary then you can go to hell (laughs) kind of you know so i think it's really important that we practice that i think that's one of the arguments for creativity is like it helps us hold many things at once so it was it was there were great conversations but I think that was it that was just like it's painful like it does require a certain amount of pain to be like let me allow in some critical thinking around a thing that I love because I I don't I don't know I guess it's I think we don't practice that and I think it's scary I think it means oh my gosh if there's something critical about this am I bad for liking it am I bad for having enjoyment around it what do you think
0: No, I think everything that you're saying is absolutely true. I mean, we did say on the podcast, you you and I and Jesse were like, I really enjoyed this movie, the Barbie movie. Mm. Like I had a lot of fun. There was a lot of like really cool, redeeming stuff in there. But here are some thoughts as well. And I think, Mm -hmm. I I don't know, I think we should be able to have that kind of critical discussion about anything and everything. You can't just like blindly support something and being like, this is good. It is pure. If you say it is not, you are bad. Like that is just such a reductive way to Mm -hmm. diminish (laughs) the discourse. But I think it's a survival
1: skill. And I think it's like the first first step is just recognizing like I, I realize that about myself. I do that about things that I have fear around and yeah I've just been thinking a lot about that in this moment of time of like this is a survival skill and what are in order to replace one survivor's survival skill you have to like replace it with something else because it's too much in this moment in time to just like let that go
0: uh, Well, th- that's the other part of it is I think uh, it is easier and simpler f- to accept a binary choice rather than have to engage with the complexity and nuance of a particular issue or topic or, you know, just even a movie that we're talking about. And I think yes. And when someone realizes that it's not as simple as a binary choice, then they're faced with the prospect of being like, "Oh, well now I have to like really think about this. And now I have to like really process my thoughts and feelings and I have to like work through this," which yeah. is incredibly important and and but 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 a much harder decision to make.
1: I think it requires community and it requires also the right community where you can safely have those conversations
0: i'm curious did any of your friends like push back against the pod was anyone like yo you guys really (laughs) set the women's movement back a few years
1: no no there was just a lot of oh that was painful or like oh gotcha yeah there there was a there was some of that there was some i mean we saw in some of our our comments people really were intent on saying but this is really important for like we, and we talked about it for for the kids um, in areas where maybe they aren't getting a message like this at all. And to that, I Absolutely. think I still like as I moved away was like, especially as uh, I guess this is new. It's it's now over a billion dollars in profit, just a billion or, or dollars it's in gross. It's gross, yeah, a billion dollar yeah gross. And I think the more I thought about our conversation, the more it's just become like. The question of but is any of that messaging worth the real world tangible consequences of the production of plastic of the fast fashion of the Mattel universe coming our way I just absolutely not
0: I had that thought exactly again this weekend I was at Trader Joe's doing my weekend grocery shop and I saw three different people wearing Barbie trademarked clothing And I just remember I was like, I remembered that point that you made during our discussion that was like so much of this fast fashion was produced in places where they paid mostly like exploited women of color, like 60 cents an hour in sweatshops to produce all of this Barbie clothing. And that is the opposite of feminism, of Mm. uh, intersectional, inclusive feminism. This is like a microcosm of last week's discussion. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm glad the film has is reaching, you know, places and younger audiences where these messages are vital. And I'm also we're also critical about, you know, the destructive uh, production aspects of this movie.
1: And I think it also ties into something mm-hmm. that you and I wanted to talk about today, which is um, another celebrity figure that everyone knows and loves and makes a lot of money. Taylor Swift, who is on the Ares tour. I I'm guessing you're not a Swifty, Frank. I,
0: I would not categorize myself as a Swifty. I mean, I'll 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 dance to, you know, one yeah. of her bops every once in a while. But no, no strong feelings about Taylor Swift.
1: I mean, yeah, I'm just going to say full disclosure. I don't understand the, the fanaticism. I've seen clips from the concert, and they have scared me a little bit. But mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. I'll leave it there. I, res- I still respect and honor whatever is happening, whatever the love is. However, um, Taylor Swift's been on this tour. It's making... It's going to be making um, upwards of a billion dollars. It's one of the highest grossing tours of all time. And this coincides with this summer of labor. And we know the hotel workers in Los Angeles have been on strike. And so Taylor's concert was headed to Los Angeles and the hotel union and the workers actually wrote a letter to Taylor asking her to postpone her tour to Los Angeles because When you have a tour of that size coming to a town, it means that all of the hotels rack up their prices to like ridiculous Mm -hmm. amounts. And it's going to bring so much more work for these um, laborers who are already on strike against exploitative practices, asking for higher wages. Yeah. So as we speak, concerts are happening. She did not postpone. She did not respond. But I guess the biggest question is like in this um, celebrity driven culture where you're making this much money and your tour is moving this much wealth around and you have these laborers who are on strike, like what is your responsibility in Taylor's position? I mean, it's probably clear what Frank and I think. But what do you think, Frank? I
0: mean, I want solidarity from everybody, although this I don't know, this does raise a very uh, interesting question uh, about I guess, celebrity responsibility and, uh, you know, whether or not Taylor actually could have moved this strike mm-hmm. or, m- like, moved what's the struggle with this strike by postponing. I mean, of course. Like, if Taylor had been like, yeah, guess what? I'm postponing my L.A. tour dates until uh, the L.A. workers get a fair contract. I would have been like, holy shit, Taylor Swift is Chairman Mao. But she didn't, <laughs> and I, that, that didn't surprise me. At all. So I don't know. Is it complicated or is it very simple?
1: I guess. I mean, I guess the only complexity would be that there's a lot of people who are also working on that tour, but she could also continue to pay them. I I think it's pretty. She's so part of the machine and the system. And I I don't know. I guess I'm tying it back to this this thought about these individual, particularly female artists that we sort of because we're expecting so much just from their identity and forgetting the system that they're serving and that they were brought up under, that there's this undue expectation of, like, just because of their identity and what they represent, perhaps, like, that will be enough or that will carry the message. It's tricky. It's like we want to hold individuals with that much accountable and also keep reminding everyone of the system that, like, these celebrities are not going to save us. But the act of solidarity alone is would be someone recognizing their place within that, which is why it's been amazing to see celebrities who have acted in solidarity in this moment for example viola Davis who is one of the few actors who said no to the waivers whatever the fuck they're calling them they, from SAG
0: the SAG interim agreements to uh, perform on uh independent features.
1: Yeah, so that's someone recognizing sort of their role and the power they have in the system. So yeah, I guess all I'm saying is I'm recognizing the complexity of Giving celebrities so much power to, like, lead any kind of movement when they are, they have been built up by this system of capitalism, and that's how they thrive. And, like, in reality, they would have to be someone totally different in some ways to do that, but, like, they can. Sure. And they mm-hmm. should.
0: I get you. It's like a double-edged sword or, like, a catch-22. I don't know how you want it, but it's like, I don't want to give celebrities too much credit and and uh, assign them too much power just because they are a celebrity. Uh, But at the same time, I am like, well, I wish you used your power and your influence as a celebrity better. You know what I mean? So it Mm. it is kind of like a little bit of both where it's like, damn, it sucks that celebrity culture makes you this important and makes you have this much influence. I, I take issues with that kind of culture on the whole while simultaneously being like, well, I guess if we have celebrity culture, I wish you were a good celebrity and like actually uh, spoke up for the people who needed you to speak up for them and actually did things that, you know, moved the needle in a material way for some people.
1: It's like something that I think this like hero syndrome that we're waiting for someone inside the system to change it. And like that shit's not happening because you Mm. you have to be of the system to be in there. And I think we do that with politics too, right? Like that's our AOC syndrome. That's like, and I... I do it all the time. I fall into it. But it isn't going to be a 1% inside. It's going to be us as a collective. Well, I'm really excited for the conversation that we're having today with Senator Nina Turner. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that, just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us.
0: Yes, we perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen.
1: And as we are trying to practice our anti-capitalist values we don't sell ads on this show. Instead, we rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon.
0: For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you will be directly supporting this show. You could also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com.
1: You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review you for this show on your podcast app it takes two seconds and it's super helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting the show in front of more people and we really appreciate it okay we're going to take a break but we'll be right back with our conversation on john q with senator nina turner we have with us today the honorable nina turner turner for those of you who don't know is a hell-raising humanitarian and a tireless advocate for economic and social justice Turner made history in 2005 as the first woman to represent Ward 1 on the Cleveland City Council and again in 2008 as the first African American woman to serve as state senator in Ohio's 25th District. She promoted progressive policies through her work with the Ohio Democratic Party, Senator Bernie Sanders' 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns, and during her time as president of Our Revolution. She currently serves as a senior fellow at the New School's Institute of Race, Power, and Political Economy. She's the host of the Hello Somebody podcast, and her writing has been featured in Newsweek, The Griot, and the anthology Wake Up, Black Women and the Future of Democracy, available for pre-order now. Senator Turner, it is such an honor and so exciting to have you on the podcast. We are both really big fans. I remember, um, Seeing you speak live for the first time in 2016 in Washington Square Park, introducing Bernie Sanders. And I also have to share that my mother is such a huge fan of yours. We actually have a photo Aww. she took with you um, yeah. <laughs> after you spoke one. So I had to I had to let her know I'd shout her out to you. So thank you for being here.
2: It's a pleasure. And tell your mom I said hello. I will.
0: <laughs> also tell your mom I said hello. Rip I will, uh, Thank you. Thank uh, you. And Senator Turner, I just want to echo everything that Rivka said. I remember, uh, you know, learning about you 2016. Um, at sub, you were speaking at a Bernie Sanders event, and I it's one of those moments we, we get so few of them in our lives when you you know you see a politician, a, a progressive speaker, someone who you're just like, damn, that person is just nailing everything that I think, everything that I feel, and is speaking in such a just like a a, a non like politician way. Does that make sense?
2: Very much so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I very, very much appreciate all the work that you do. So thank you.
2: Thank you. And I appreciate you too as well. And really excited. I was, I'm, I was actually looking forward. I told Ali, I said, I am looking forward to this interview.
0: Oh, hell yeah. So yeah. So what we do is we talk about movies and their politics. And you chose a really uh, wonderful movie for us to watch. You chose John Q. Released in February 15, 2002, directed by Nick Cassavetes, written by James Kearns. This movie stars Denzel Washington, Kimberly Elise, Robert Duvall, Anne Haish, James Woods, and Ray Liotta. The budget was $36 million, and it made $102 million worldwide. It's a very successful movie. Yeah. And this is the story of John Quincy Archibald, played by Denzel Washington, a Christian family man, a loving husband, and... I think the best father in the world, uh, (laughs) whose young son, Michael, faints and collapses during a Little League game as a result of heart failure. John and his wife rush Michael to a hospital emergency room where John is informed that Michael will soon die unless he receives a heart transplant within the next few weeks. They are also informed that his health insurance will not cover his son's transplant due to his employer cutting his work hours and changing their health insurance plan. Completely out of options, John takes the emergency room staff and its patients hostage until the hospital doctors agree to perform the transplant for his son.
1: And so before we jump into so much amazing stuff in this film, we like to give a little context for the year that it was released. So this was released February 15th, 2002. This was five months after the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center and four months after the beginning of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. In January of that year, the Boston Globe publishes a story detailing the Catholic Archdiocese of Boston sex abuse scandal. In May, the first Spider-Man movie starring Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst is released in theaters. And in June, the first episode of the reality competition show American Idol airs. And in October, Congress passes the Iraq resolution authorizing the Iraq war. That is 2002 for you.
0: So Senator Turner, the first thing we start the conversation with, we ask our guests, why did you choose this movie for us to watch?
2: Well, I chose this movie because it is so germane to what is happening in our country right now. I mean, this movie could have been made in 2023. The resonance. Mm-hmm. This movie was really very much ahead of its time. Two thousand and two, I'm I'm thinking I I thought it was in nineteen ninety nine, but two thousand and two, but it 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 speaks To this day, and because I care so deeply, I am a huge proponent of Medicare for all. And as you both noted, you know, from my bio, I certainly served with Senator Bernie Sanders for both of his presidential campaigns. And that was a foundational plank pillar, if you will, commitment of the senator to push really hard for us to have universal health care in the United States of America. We are the only industrialized nation on the face of the earth that does not have some type of universal health care. We are a hegemon nation, so it definitely makes no sense. But this really spoke to me, not just from a political lens, but my mom died at the young age of 42 years old, and she was underinsured. She had a brain aneurysm, and so I'm making a long story less long here. Uh, this movie speaks to me both in my what I believe politically should happen by the will, the full force and weight of the federal government, and also from personal experience. And just the people that I grew up around and the people that I had the opportunity to see and meet with and talk to as I traveled this country on behalf of Senator Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 2020, leave no doubt. I mean, we got empirical data and we have anecdotal data that we need universal health care in this country, not just for individuals, but also for businesses as well. There's a business component to this as well, especially for small businesses. I'm. Very I'm
0: so sorry to hear about that about your mother, and I appreciate you sharing that with us because it because I, I think we all know someone who has suffered through this this system. And that actually raises the question. Riff and I were curious. Where were you in your political development in two thousand and two? Like, do you remember seeing this movie? How involved were it, in politics? Were you at that point? And do you remember like do you remember seeing this movie at that time? and did it have any kind of major impact on you?
2: Yeah, I remember seeing the movie. I had not been elected to any office in 2002. I was first elected to Cleveland City Council in 2005, so three years after that. But yes, my mom died in 1992, and certainly when I saw this movie, it touched me in so many ways. Even to this day, Ripka and Frank, I cry like a baby every time I watch this movie as if it was my very first time because for me, the the note, this character, I mean, Denzel Washington brought this character to life. I mean, this man exists all over this country, different ethnicities, races, different identities. But this man and or woman exists. This person exists. And so for me, I mean, I I was just trying to, you know, deal with my life, deal with my mom passing, deal with being the oldest of seven children and the full economic weight and pressures of what it means to be part of a working class family that did not have a lot. My mom certainly did not have a lot. And so this from a, from a moral perspective, just a heart perspective, this movie weighed on me greatly and it still weighs on me to this day. And I think it is one of the greatest movies ever made. It certainly is not the only one, but it's one of the greatest movies ever made to help explain why we should, and we must have universal health care.
1: Yeah, I'm right there with you. I was I, I was watching pieces of it before right before even though I watched it last yeah. night. And I was like, I can't watch it without tearing up. And that's yeah. I think one of the powers of this film is the performances are unreal. Yes. unreal Kimberly Elise as the mother to who is I mean she's wonderful yeah. I don't know how like, they were there doing those scenes without breaking down I, it leaves such an impact on you and I remember that from 2002 I was in high school but I remember the impact of seeing this film emotionally and how how it can't be underestimated the power of emotion to radicalize and move people and I think that's something I know Frank and I were talking about the power that you have, Senator, in in speaking, that you can speak to people's emotion, that this is not, you know, people who speak to politics like it's something intellectual or hard to understand. It's not, you know, and this film is not complicated because this is not a complicated issue. And I think one of the things it does really well is it makes it clear who the bad guys are, the health (laughs) insurance, the medical industry colluding, and they are the ones who try and make it very complicated. And John Q and all of the people in the film are like, it's not eventually the people who John takes hostage in the film because it's a hostage movie. If you haven't watched in a while, John takes the hospital hostage to get this heart transplant for his son. They're all on his side. The people outside end up being on his side because it's so evident to everyone that it is insane to ask someone to pay, I think the amount they're asking for then, I'm sure now would be so much more, as like $250,000 to get their son a new heart. And they they claim they have this very strict policy for cash payments, $75,000 that he would have to put down. John actually raises twenty two thousand dollars from his community um the family raises this from their community which makes me think about how people now like our healthcare system and i know you've spoken to this is go fund me like that is that's just what right. well, we consider oh if something happens to me i'm sure all of us i know i've had that in the back of my head like well if something serious happens to me like that's my insurance plan is like is <laughs> crowdfunding and that is not okay um, I think Frank, we have like a clip if we want to play it from that, from the the early moment when John Q goes into the uh Rebecca Payne, which I also love how they have the characters' names are so spot on. She is going to cause oh, a lot of pain for this. I family. didn't even <laughs> clock
0: I didn't even clock that.
1: <laughs> Played by Anne Haish, but it sets it up nicely here. Okay, I can see here that you don't own your home. You have no stocks, no bonds, no investments. You have a little over a thousand dollars in savings. But we got insurance. That may very well be, Mr. Archibald. You're gonna have to check with your carrier on that. In the meantime, I'm afraid we're gonna have to treat this as a cash account. What? How much does a transplant cost? Wait a
2: minute, baby, let me take you. How how much does a trans... how much does it cost?
1: Transplant surgery, doctors' fees, post-operative care, immunosuppressant drugs, you're looking at a minimum of $250,000. Wow. If you opt for transplant surgery, that is your choice. But the hospital maintains a very strict policy with regard to cash patients. We require a down payment before we can put a patient's name on a receiver's list. How much? What kind of down payment? 30%. $75,000. $75, $75,000? To
2: put my son's Our name. My son
1: is upstairs dying, and all you can do is sit here and talk about money? It costs money to provide health care. It's expensive for you, it's expensive for us.
0: I mean, Anne is... Very good in this movie. She's very good in the, be, because you hate her so much in this movie. I mean, she's she's a bureaucrat. She's a she's she's management. There's a lot of people in this world, um, I would imagine, especially in the healthcare industry, who have learned at some point just to completely divorce any sort of emotion they have from their work because if your job just if most of your job is just telling people that they can't receive healthcare and treatment, that's that's dehumanizing that like that I, I imagine that must dehumanize a person
2: yeah definitely i mean humiliate humiliation is the first word that came to mind and you're absolutely mm. right and hesh played the hell out of that role every every actor and actress in this film played their part the little boy the little baby i call him a little baby he played the <laughs> hell out of his role I, so I, everybody charming. yeah very yeah. much so i mean this this movie, very well put together, very well thought out, and again, very much ahead of its time, but humiliation is the first thing that came to mind, and Mm. this happens to millions of people every single day. John Q is real, Mm -hmm. and that is the most painful thing about this film, that this is not fiction, this is not make-believe, this is art imitating life.
0: You're talking about the humiliation they feel for having to get help from their community for having to sell off all of their things is that is that what you're speaking to well
2: and and to have uh uh, miss Payne talk to them in that way as if they are nothing Mm -hmm. you don't have you know you don't own your home you don't have any stocks and bonds you don't Mm -hmm. and 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 at a point in the movie one of his friends who works with him when he he's interviewed he said you know if his name was rockefeller if he had millions of dollars, see, see, John don't get it because he believes it's about the values. Well, no, it's about who is valued.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: what is the cost of life? I mean, this movie captures everything that is in the debate right now in 2023 about how much it would cost. Is it worth the cost? How much is a human life or a group of human lives worth when it comes to making the requisite investment? In universal health care in the United States of America. We should be ashamed of ourselves.
1: And she says at the end of that clip to him, uh, it's very expensive.
2: Yeah. Expensive for you, expensive for us. You
1: know, when you really get down, expensive for you, expensive for us. Is it? You know what I mean? Like, so you're telling me it really cost, like $250,000. Like, you... But I do think and, and I'm curious from from your experience, because I know you've talked to so many people in so many walks of life about this exact issue. Are there people who really actually buy that, that it costs that much money? Like this is just a re- it's just expensive. Or is it do people know it's bullshit?
2: I think people do. I mean, you, you ask the question, does anybody buy it? Yeah. The people like the- <laughs> Anne Hesh's character, <laughs> they buy it. the commodification of healthcare is cruel and unusual punishment. Mm-hmm. And when we think about the, the whole notion of the pursuit of life, liberty and happiness or as FDR was laying out, you know, right as, as World War II was raging, he did understand that the sacrifice that Americans were making that on the other side of that, he needed to promise them something for this sacrifice, which is how the Economic Bill of Rights came about is in that particular moment for mm-hmm. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, just in case, I don't I want to assume everybody knows who FDR is, and that was in, in the 40s. So Medicare, as we have it today, was envisioned to be a healthcare system for all, but bad politics got in the way, and then it was limited to what we have today. There have been decades and decades of, or generations before this moment, fighting to have universal healthcare in the United States of America, and every step of the way, the the Anne Hesh's characters of the world, uh, both in hospital systems themselves and then politicians get in the way from making this a reality. It is absolutely mm. humiliating. And one other point while we're on this subject, most people i believe, see most people are working class unless you got a sugar mama or sugar daddy or sugar somebody <laughs> you work in class. <laughs> and some of us are blessed, you know, to maybe be at the top of the working class in terms of salary some people are in the middle, and some people are at the bottom, and then we have the, the totally, we're just poor. But everybody works for a living, and most of us, not only are you one or two paychecks away from ruin, you are one major health scare, like what they endure with their son, away from total ruin. I mean, when I was on the campaign trail... For Senator Sanders, I talked to people who were in the upper, upper middle class telling stories about, you know, having a spouse contract cancer and how their savings were being depleted. Now, if that happens to people who are in the upper echelons of the middle class, what do you think about everybody else? This should not be the case and it does not. You know what the thing is? It doesn't have to be. What is so criminal and immoral about this is that it doesn't have to be the case. In Mm -hmm. the United States,
0: and this this movie does such a great job in setting up uh, John Q. and his family because you know some of the the propaganda that we're fed in this country is you know well if you don't have health insurance if you can't afford coverage if you can't afford these things then you must not have worked hard enough you must not have studied hard enough you must have not blah 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 all the things that puts the blame back on the individual rather than the system itself. And this movie is brilliant because it it just – it's so simple. It's like John and his wife and his family, they are doing their best. They are doing everything within their power. They go to church every Sunday. Like, he works hard. And it's it's great. Right at the top, in the first five minutes, you know, he says, you know, they cut my hours down at the plant to 20 hours a week, and they're shipping all the jobs to Mexico. Like, this – That's right. The, the first scene is him watching a George W. Bush uh, uh, political address on the TV. Like, this – it, it names the times so clearly. It's basically calling out, like, the ravages of neoliberalism, like, right at the top. And then it shows this is just a good, hardworking family doing their best, and it's not their fault. It, it's not their fault. They are, they are absolutely not to blame for what has happened to them.
2: Yeah, and they both are working. I mean, let's face mm-hmm. it, in today's economy especially, maybe not so much the case in 2002. We're light years away from that you can't be a couple both spouses or or, or partners have to work mm-hmm. period and and you're right Frank they do lay that out very beautifully
1: and even at the end the kills me when um Denzel makes the John Q makes the decision at the end that he's going to spoiler alert if you haven't watched <laughs> oh. there's always spoiler alerts for this yeah. podcast but yeah. He's, oh, uh, so his son's heart is too big. I personally love like all the on the nose stuff in this. Like his son's heart is too big. He literally is too big a heart, which is why his heart, because this child is so cute. They couldn't have found <laughs> a cuter child actor. And his heart is too big. And his blood type is B positive. So there's there's that as well. But he, he decides that he's going to give his son his heart because There was not art coming so he's going to shoot himself in the hospital and he gives this final speech to his son um, knowing he's going to go in the next room and take his own life so his son can have his heart and he says you know he's giving all this advice like you know stick to your own word listen to your mother treat women well and then he says make money when you get a chance even if you have to sell out every once in a while (laughs) he's like don't be stupid like your father Everything is so much
2: easier with money, son. Just poignant, you know, and Reeve, you and I are tearing up right now. I mean, isn't that the damn truth? Isn't that the truth? And even before we get to that scene, you know, when the wife calls and they're manipulating, they want to use her to draw him out so they can kill him. The police chief, the, the politics in this, mm. the police chief saying it's an election year, you know, but I'm gonna put that in the parking lot when he's talking to his son and and, and, you know, he talked to his wife and, and she said, do you pray for him, John? And, you know, are you praying for our son? And she's just tearing up. And he said, yes. And he wanted to talk to his son. The, even that conversation, this was part of the conversation. But mm-hmm. before he had decided that I got to shoot myself to give my son my heart. And his son asked him, he said, dad, am I going to die? And John Q, the dad, says, no. He was like, what kind of world would it be? There is no world without you. Mm. Man, you know, people just even symbolically go to those links all the time. It might not be them taking an emergency room hostage, but the symbolism of what John Q had to go through and, and, and his wife had to go through in order to force the system to pay attention to their pain. And even when they sent the sniper in and John Q finally got him down, he put him out there. He said, you you're trying to kill me. You sent this person in here to kill me. I am not. My, I am not going to bury my son. My son is going to bury me. When people need help, they should get help. When they need help, they should get help. And you know, he kept, there was a rhetorical a nature to him saying, you know, when people need help. They should be able to get help. That is the that is the flipping moment, I almost said the other word, um, that we are in right now. When people mm-hmm. need help, they should be able to get that help. So shame on this country.
0: Rifka and I were talking, when you suggested this movie, we were talking about it because we both hadn't seen it in a while, but we we're like, damn, that's, that's an important movie and I'm really glad that you chose it. But I was saying, I think that might be one of the only hostage movies that I can think of where you are on the person who's taking everyone hostage's side from the beginning to the end. And not only are we, like, we, the audience, is on his side, everyone in this movie is on his side. Like Rivka, like, alluded to up top, like, pretty much halfway through the hostage situation, everyone, all of his hostages are like, yo, John, whatever you need. Like, we we got your back. We're absolutely... The crowd outside, uh, like, behind the police barricade are all cheering for him every time he shows up. So, like, it, it is very apparent and the the desperation that this system puts people in it's you're watching this play out and you're like yeah this is completely justified like this man is just willing to he's willing to do whatever he can to save his son like if that is not the most relatable thing in the world to anyone who has a child like I, i don't know what is um and there's this brilliant scene in the middle of the emergency room with all the hostages where they sort of just lay out all the problems with the American healthcare system. And this this is between James Wood, who's the head of cardiology, some of the like lower rung doctors. And another thing this movie does really well is it portrays all of the hospital management uh, as sort of like these callous, sort of like dehumanized, uh, you know, just like money managers. But all of like the rank and file healthcare workers, like the two or three doctors who are part of this are like, we only care about giving quality health care we care about taking care of people like it's the, the the rank and file who actually want to help people and it's the management who are they're like you know the more uh callous one so i'm gonna play this this clip this debate that happens in the emergency room
2: you know what i don't understand is why they never found it, the doctors my son has had clean checkups every year since the day he was born
1: how could the doctors not pick it up he might not have been tested thoroughly enough
2: why not you got an hmo right Yeah. Well, there's your answer. I mean, HMOs pay their doctors not to test. That's their way of keeping costs down. All right, let's say Mike didn't need additional testing, and insurance says they won't cover them. The doctor keeps his mouth shut, and come Christmas, the HMO sends the doctor a fat ass bonus check. Is that true?
0: Possible. Not likely, but
2: possible. you telling me that these doctors may have known what was wrong with my son, and they could have treated him all along? Uh, Who knows? I don't know, John. Don't take this personal, Doc. you got a bunch of goddamn crooks. You don't know what you're talking about.
1: What about that thing that you guys take? The thing? Yeah, that promise, what do they call it?
2: It's called the Hippocratic Oath. More like the oath. How's it go, Doc? I solemnly swear to take care of the sick, damn near dying, unless they ain't got major medical. Something like that.
0: You got it perfectly, that's yeah. it. It's funny, but it's not that far from the truth, okay? this shit happens
2: all the time. Paramedics bring in some accident victim, and when the big boys in accounting find out they can't pay, they send them packing. Hospitals can't turn people away. Isn't
0: there laws against that? Yeah,
2: there's laws, but there's also ways around those laws. The only thing we have to do is stabilize them, and after that, we're off the hook, and you know it.
0: That's not how it works.
2: That's exactly how it works. Maybe not up there on the fifth floor, but in here, if you don't have any money, you get a Band-Aid, a foot in the ass, and you're out the door.
0: I mean, talking about emotion radicalizing people. I remember seeing this movie, damn, I must have been like eighth grade. This was like right when I started really getting into film. And I remember watching this movie on my own. And, uh, you know, I didn't get a lot of lessons from my parents. My parents did not (laughs) impart me with a lot of politics, with a lot of anything really. So I kind of gleaned all of like my, a lot of like my foundational political views are from movies. And I remember seeing this movie, at that age, and just being so devastated, and like real, this was my first like foray into learning about the American healthcare system. So this movie like really did what it sought out to do.
1: It's interesting in my research, the response. Uh, because I was I was very curious, like what was the response at the time from the healthcare industry, and you know there was actually a lot of. Critically, and from the healthcare industry, the response was, this is melodramatic. This isn't necessarily real. Um, I read an article that said the American Association of Health Plans, the leading trade association for health insurance and health maintenance organizations, bought full page advertisements in Variety and The Hollywood Reporter in 2002 when this came out, featuring the tagline John Q. It's not just a movie. However, even though they were acknowledging that 40 million Americans were without health insurance at the time they argued that um, managed health plans were not to blame. So I think they felt oh, there was like a huge feeling of threat. And actually, Dr. Oz was a um, was it someone who <laughs> was, a, what do you call it, a consultant for the film and was oh, very upset with how the film turned. Like there were a lot of consultants who I think weren't aware that it was going to be so anti-insurance, you know,
2: mm-hmm. telling the
1: truth, frankly. Um, and they were upset about that. But from the director, Nick... Cassavetes, who also the film's dedicated to Sasha, his daughter, who had um, four operations to repair a congenial heart condition defect, and I think was 13 at the time. And Cass was, was very aware that, you know, if if he had been, he was just lucky to have had the health insurance he did through his union. Um, as a director and a writer, but otherwise making this movie was very clear, like you were saying, Senator, absolutely would totally destroy their family. No one can can move past something like that. And he said, the people this doesn't affect find it to be an overly fantastic melodrama. But play this movie in a middle class or poor area and people are angry and yelling at the screen. They get it. And I think that's true. You saw the critics say, oh, this is melodramatic. Oh, this is over the top. Anyone who's really in this world in reality is like, this is, like you were saying, reflecting the world as we know it. It's actually not over the top. It's exactly what it is.
2: No, that's true. And and only people who have the luxury to to say that the movie was melodramatic. Think about that. People saying Mm -hmm. that had the luxury to say that, meaning that they – have care, they have all of their, more than their, their basic needs met. So they can treat this as if it is some fantasy. Again, as I said earlier, this is really a movie that imitates life every day, all day long for millions of Americans who are either uninsured or underinsured. We shouldn't lose the point that yeah, his hours were cut, he wasn't made aware, he thought he still had health insurance. So he was stunned, him and his wife were absolutely stunned that they mm-hmm. didn't have the coverage that they need. And that is a problem today. Certainly being uninsured is a huge problem. And so is being underinsured because the co-pays and the deductibles alone, you know, can can take you out. People cannot necessarily afford those co-pays and those deductibles, all of the fine print that goes into this. This is a systemic failure. And the movie John Q lays that out so beautifully. Uh, we do understand who's the victim, who's the vindicator. And who's the villain? Mm-hmm. The system is the villain. Mm-hmm. John Q is the vindicator, clearly, mm-hmm. uh, in this movie.
0: And this movie is also smart in that it incorporates uh, law enforcement and the media in, yes. its, crit- in its critique. So bef- like, I want to talk about that just for a minute because I think it does such a great job. So, you know, it, it's a hostage situation. So the police obviously show up. Robert Duvall plays the chief <laughs> negotiator. And we're meant to believe that he's like you know the the old-timer cop who's really good at his job and you know cares and actually wants to make sure everyone's safe and then and then we're introduced to Ray Liotta's character who is the police chief and he is there clearly just for the cameras just wants to just wants to appear like he's you know the guy in charge he's glad-handing he's smiling but he wants to he's the one that comes in as like we got to Shoot this guy! Like I, I yeah. want this done. I want this cleaned up. But he says it's an election year. It's an election um,
2: year. That's right.
0: Yeah, and then we, and then we also get the the reporter who is on the scene, who is clearly just there for ratings, career Even, advancement, because they like tap into the feet of the hospital. He says, "This is my white Bronco," and he that <laughs> I couldn't believe that oh, when yeah. he said that. Um, so yeah, did you two have any thoughts about the way that it, this movie critiqued either the like either law enforcement or the media in this case?
2: I mean, the reporter. I mean, definitely he was social media before there was social media <laughs> in that way. I mean, he was getting yeah. get into the feed, get it on there. This is my ticket. And we mm-hmm. find ourselves from a twenty twenty three lens that that really is what reporting has become. There are very few real journalists anymore. A lot of commentating but very few journalists. And for him, he saw the handwriting on the wall, the theater, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm. You know, that's really all all he cared about, and it was so, so clear. That was beautiful. And as far as the police, yes, Robert Duvall's character played the old-timer, and he was, but at a certain point, remember when John Q came out and he had the sniper, and, and, and the old-timer said, what do you expect was gonna happen, John? Mm. There's only two ways out of here. Over there, he was pointing to the jail, or dead. You know, so all of his, you know, at first he came off as more reasonable than the police chief. But at a certain point, he was just like the police chief, just a lower rank. And the police Mm. chief was very clear. This is an election cycle. We're going to use his wife to draw him out. We cannot give him a win. If he shoots hostages, he wins. And if we give him what he wants, he wins. Basically, we need to be the winners. It is an election year, and an election year demands that somebody takes the fall for this. I'm paraphrasing. And it's not going to be us. It is going to be John Q. Yeah,
1: I found that just so frustrating to see how the crowd, the people outside, everybody wanted them to do what was right. And they were serving a larger power. That wasn't even fully present, you know, like the exactly the election cycle, the bigger power that is. And they don't care about the fact that there's protests outside with people demanding that they let John Q um, because they know that that would mean uh, that that would ultimately mean Medicare for all that would ultimately mean changing the system. So in that way, I felt like I was left as the audience in that demand, you know, just radicalized in that way. So. Yeah, I hope people rewatch this movie. I do, too. Yeah. It's, it's so... Pre- and it was written... Actually, was written... The screenplay was in 1993. Then it was made okay. in 2002. Oh, and wow. And now it's 2023, and it is really upsetting that it's only continued, like you said, to be more relatable.
0: It's also, for as uh, for as intense and sad as the subject matter is... It's also like a. It's a very, very good movie. Like you're gripped. You're. I. I don't want to say entertaining. It's not like you're sitting there with popcorn. Like you know, haha. Sure. But you're just. It's a, a gripping movie that just draws you in. And yeah, I, I, I was really glad I got the chance to revisit it. Um, did either of you have anything else you wanted to talk about before we go to the awards?
2: You know, ultimately the end. Since we spoiler alert already, <laughs> you know that uh, Denzel. Didn't have to kill himself. And ultimately, he didn't have any bullets in that gun. His intent was not to really kill anybody. Mm-hmm. He was just trying to get some attention for his son. You know, I love that part about it, too. But when push came to shove, he was going to sacrifice his life. He had the bullets on him. He just didn't have them in the gun. And 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 the movie does a good job of really who's the bad guy. And we talked about that. I mean, it's very clear. It's not John Q. It is the systemic failures. So for people who... Have watched the movie, definitely I agree you should watch it again. If you haven't watched it, our apologies. But you must, must go and watch this movie. Ultimately, he didn't have to kill himself. But the fact is, at the end of this movie, John Q still had to pay a consequence. And the system paid no consequence Mm -hmm. whatsoever.
0: All right. Well, this is the point in the episode, Senator Turner, where we give out awards for this movie. So we got three of them. The first award is called A Point With A View. This goes to the character with the best politics in the movie, so this might be an easy one for this one.
2: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's definitely Denzel. It's yeah. uh, definitely John Q and and Mrs. John Q. It's it's mm-hmm. uh, both of those. Yeah, characters have the best I, politics. I would
1: I would put in a plug for for her. I can't remember her name, but the character that Kimberly Elise plays because she's really that mother's heart, and she, yeah. you know, you see them. At, a duo but like part of his impetus she's like just do something john do but something. when they come to her and they they ask her to sort of turn on him and she figures it out the police she's like i'm not turning on my husband are That's you right. kidding i'm with yeah. him uh-huh. and That's that right. moment was really important so yeah. yes i would share it between the two of them yeah definitely
0: the, Ar- the
2: archibald joint. parents
1: archibald and of course that yes. child because
2: oh my Mikey, god yes. because i
1: mean like yeah Mikey's oh, amazing
2: he, he is amazing <laughs>
1: So our next award is Despicable You. This goes to the character with the worst politics
2: in the movie. Well, obviously Miss Payne. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. Hesh yeah. and Hesh character. <laughs> yeah, Miss Payne. Yeah, that's
0: like the that's the easy one. Also, uh, James Woods' character, the Doctor. He's
1: he's Doctor Turner. Doctor Turner.
0: He's pretty gross at times too, because like, and you get you get more. Uh, you get different flavors of how shitty he is. Cause like there's that one scene where he's talking to like the rich white couple that he just performed oh. a heart transplant on. And he's like, Oh, he's like, how, he's like, how long until you're going to get back on the golf course? Oh, and you got to stay away from him. No, uh, don't get him too excited. And then like, he won't give John the time of day. Uh, he changes his mind near by the end, uh, but only under duress So like, yeah,
2: force. I, I, yeah,
0: yeah. So yeah, I'd a combination of pain and Dr. Turner, pretty bad politics. Yeah, um, I agree. All right, and then our final award is called A Star is Scorned. This goes to the supporting character or characters that this movie should actually be about, or, or rather a, a movie you would want to see with some supporting characters. I, I would do like a vignette movie of like a bunch of little short stories about all of the different people in the emergency room because they did such a good job at flight. Because <laughs> like, you have about like eight or nine people in there. You got Eddie Griffin. Uh, you've got—I uh, don't know the other actor's name—but you got like you know the like the, the the shitty white guy. You've got like the the young black couple. You've-
2: security guard, white. The sec- security guard. That's
0: right. The um, nurse who's cool.
1: like, "It's my first day." Yes, yes, <laughs>
2: yes, yes. Poor baby.
0: Yeah, I would watch a movie about all of them, like a day in the life yeah. of all of them, or like what 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 they were doing leading right up until the mo- the moment they got Ooh, to that emergency room.
2: Yeah, mm. I like that.
1: I might do. Um, Mikey, this like the sequel to this. I wonder, like, how has this affected Mike? You know, Mikey has this heart, Mikey's so cute, but like, does Mikey grow up to be an activist? Like, what is the next step in this Ooh. story?
2: Yeah. Yeah,
0: like Mikey crazy. gets into like healthcare reform.
2: Yeah. Or, or, or becomes, <laughs> yeah. becomes on top like, you know, of wrestling because he loved wrestling. Yeah. Top, or <laughs> both. Mikey can do both. both. He can do both. <laughs> I, I think. I mean, you guys certainly have started for me. You know what happens to the dad? You know, uh, John Q. Archibald. You know, is he vindicated in some way? Would love to follow his journey because is he is the hero. I mean, being willing to. Put your body physically on the line to fight against the system, to save your baby, to save your son. And another beautiful thing about this movie I want to share with both of you and also the listeners. It is rare in Hollywood films, unfortunately, and this galls me to no end. So I'm glad I get a chance to say this on your show. The formula that is used when it comes to black people, and they rarely have us coupled together in strong, loving productive relationships. A lot of times we're in no relationship at all, or we're not in a relationship with each other. Mm. And I think another beautiful point to this movie is it showed a very strong, loving black family. They do exist. I want, I want folks out there who don't believe the hype. They do exist. They are not an anomaly, but that meant so much to me, uh, just as much to me as how the story developed but I would love to see, yeah, what happened to John Q after this? And did he go on a crusade? Did he continue his crusade? And also, let me throw in Anne Hesch's character, too, Miss Payne. Did she have an epiphany? Did she have a change? Did she administrate differently? Did she somehow become an activist for universal health care? There are examples of people out there right now who. Uh, were part of health insurance companies saw the light and now they're telling telling it all out in the open right now mm. so oh Ooh, wow, really? that's a
1: great point yeah. oh i love that yeah or just a great title miss pain <laughs> <laughs> wow so that i mean this has been such an amazing conversation again thank you for bringing this movie to us Having us rewatch this and have this conversation through this lens, it's so important. And yes, please go rewatch this movie if you've seen it or watch it for the first time. And before we wrap up, we like to ask our guests how they practice their values in their own lives. If it's, um, you know, leftist values, anti-capitalist values, is there something that you do in your own life or practice you engage with that you would like to share here? I know you do a lot of things.
2: I do. I mean, I'm still on the front lines. I mean, I join picket lines with union workers, uh, both my physical presence and also my social media presence. I write op-eds. I go to conferences and talk about, you know, as as part of my bio that you read, Rivka. I am a, a senior fellow for the the New School Institute on uh, Race, Power, and Political Economy. And that our, in our institute, our goal is to push a public policy, to do the type of research that gets the result through public policy. But living those values also is not just through academia, but it's to be physically present for mm. people who need you in the moment. I've done that all throughout my political career. I continue to do that. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be joining Christian Smalls in August Uh, For the Amazon workers, for those of you who don't know Christian Small, he leads the Amazon Workers Union. He's having a big conference in in August, and I'll be right there with him. I've been on the line with the Starbucks workers. I went to Bessemer, Alabama, to be side-by-side with those Amazon workers as they tried very hard to push the line to unionize. So there's a bustling right now. And and I want the viewers, uh, your listeners and viewers, to know you don't have to have a fancy title to get involved. Any of us, any of us can be the change that we wanna see in the world. And all we have to do is put a little extra on our ordinary so that extraordinary things can happen. That is the only way that extraordinary things happen is when ordinary people put a little extra on that and then this country moves.
0: I love that. That's a perfect sentiment. Mm -hmm. Um, Senator Turner, uh, yeah, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for choosing this movie. where can our audience find you uh, and your work?
2: Well, certainly my pleasure to join both of you. I hope you invite me back. I would like to preview, I would like to do Malcolm X with you at some point. I was Absolutely. torn between those two, but thank you for having me and thank you for your work that you do to expose and uplift and edify. People can find me on Twitter at. Nina Turner on Instagram, Nina Turner, Ohio, on threads, Nina Turner, Ohio, uh, Facebook, Nina Turner. I know I'm missing some things, but you can find me.
0: Awesome. Thank you again for joining us. It really means a lot. Thank
2: you.
1: Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying this show, please consider becoming a supporter. You can find all of that info at mvcpod.com.
0: For next week's movie, we'll be watching the Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd 1980s comedy classic, Trading Places.